Welcome to Encounter, a series of podcasts from the Wolf Institute in which we consider matters of faith and belief in society. I'm Ed Kessler, founder director of the Institute, and in this program we're talking about being offended and being offensive. I have three guests with me to discuss this topic, Julian Hargreaves, research fellow at the Wolf Institute, Hira Amin, lecturer at Qatar Foundation in Doha, and Dunya Habash, research and outreach officer at the Wolf Institute. Dunya, this is Hira. Hira, this is Dunya. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Can I sit down? We'll be touching on religious stereotyping, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and inevitably, the role of the social media. I'm a little nervous, Julie. Why? <laughs> I'm a little nervous, too. Why? You know what I thought was really funny is how, I was like, oh God, the irony is, I'm worried I'm going to offend anybody. <laughs> we mostly want to talk and listen and also disagree and learn how to disagree. Hira, what's offended you recently? Oh, I think it's a difficult question. And the irony being, if I say it, I think it's going to offend a lot of people. <laughs> but um, I was recently on a flight and I was sat next to two people from, should I say where they're from? It's just they had a very strong smell about them. And the entire flight, I was waiting for my sinuses to get used to this smell. <laughs> but it actually didn't happen, which I don't understand why. Okay, so the odour of travel. Let's put it like the that is offensive. Travel. I yes, get that. We've all been there. <laughs> Julian, what's offended you recently? My train in into the uh, office every morning into Cambridge is uh, populated with many, many school children, all of whom talk very loudly about GCSEs, A-levels, I'm no interest and uh, whilst I'm not offended, I would say I'm often annoyed and they are told to shut up quite a lot by the other passengers. And do you offend them? Uh, no, I'm normally uh, the last person to sort of tell someone else to shut up in that situation or I'm thinking it first. Well, we'll see as we get on. And Dunya, now you don't take the plane to work, you don't take the train to work. What's been offending you on your way in? Well, actually, I live on a pretty noisy street and in the evenings, a lot of young, drunk people walk by my window and it's very annoying having to just roll my eyes constantly and not be able to do anything about that. But yeah, yeah the rolling of eyes. Well, that leads us nicely. Hang into... on a minute. What about you? How have you been offended recently? Oh, every day I'm offended. If it's not my <laughs> wife, it's my children. And if I offend them, the day starts well. OK, we've all talked about how we're personally offended. Now let's talk about how our communities are offended. So let's consider the false binary between legally permissible bigotry, known to some as the freedom to offend, and violence and terror. By framing events today in Manichaean terms, dark versus light, good versus evil, we're kind of forced into a crude and facile position. There are no dilemmas, only declarations. What is lacking in complexity is made up in polemical clarity and the provision of a clear enemy. Isn't it great? But is this an accurate depiction of society today? Hira? I think this is really interesting, um, this black and white Manchin view. Um, I may be digressing, but um, my husband's really into superhero movies. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I dislike superhero movies is specifically for this reason of this very black and white, you have the superhero versus the evil villain. But actually what's been happening recently in the superhero movies, I don't know if you follow this, but um, the new ones such as the Avengers, the villains are not 100% evil. 
And they're actually introducing this concept of these grey areas where superheroes are not always on the side of right and villains are not always on the side of evil. And I think this is um, very interesting because we're living in a world now where we don't just look at our national context, we live in such a global complex, complex world and cosmopolitan world that we do have to start thinking about these things in um, more shades of grey. And this is where these, these superhero movies are now but do they, do they represent life? I mean, what, what, one of the things we're hearing all the time is how, you know, divided we are and this thing about, you know, manarchy and the division between good and evil. And is, is that how society is going at the moment? And are, are these sort of movies sort of reacting against that? But, I mean, do you feel that we're becoming more divided, that we're becoming more aggressive, we're becoming more offensive and we're becoming more liable to be offended? Um, actually, no, I'm, maybe I'm a bit more positive, but I do think that... While there are obviously um, controversies that are happening, I think we are dealing with them. For example, if you look at the Danish cartoons, in the UK, the mainstream newspapers refused to print them, um, which I think is positive. I think that they, that they showed some sign of respect. I do think that was positive. Respect to whom? Respect to the Muslims who were offended by the cartoons. At what point, Dunya, do you think we should allow that offence to take place. I mean, we're in a free country, you're from the US, you know, this whole declaration of freedom, freedom of expression and so on. You know, when does that freedom of expression fall into unacceptable offensiveness? I think um, it comes down to power and, um, you know, condescension. You know, traditionally satire is used in the West to um, criticize the powerful, right? That that was the start of it. But I think when you use satire to to criticize those who are powerless in in our societies and communities, that that to me is not satire anymore. That is something very condescending and disrespectful and just lacking in in human decency. So, although yes, as an American, I I do have very strong uh, belief in, in freedom of speech. I mean, that is essential, definitely. You know, my parents left Syria precisely for those very rights, you know, to, to reclaim those personal human rights. Um, so growing up with that is a full belief of mine. But at the same time, um, I do not believe that vulgarity and obscenity um, in speech is, is also a part of that. I don't think it, it fits into the right for freedom of speech. I think one of the interesting things to me about the debates around satire and freedom of speech, if you think about the support for the uh, Je suis Charlie campaign after the attacks against the Charlie Hebdo offices, the interesting thing is that often freedom of speech is spoken as an absolute right, uh, but it never has been. Uh, whether you look at things like libel, slander, harassment, there have always been limits to what we can say. Uh, we think about under English law, uh, you can assault someone, not just with actions, but with words which cause them to fear violence. So these things have always been contained, and at a more everyday level, they've also been contained by senses of guilt, politeness, etiquette, certain situations can sort of limit how, how we talk. And I, I, for one, am very glad I don't live in a world where the people around me hear everything that I think. It would be a you know, pretty unpleasant place. But let's get the cow off the ice. We're talking generalities. Give yeah. me some specifics. Give me an example which you think is acceptable offensiveness. Acceptable offensiveness? Yeah, what, what's well, acceptable uh, OK, so after 9-11, the Labour government tried to pass this anti-terror bill. 
to make it into the uh, Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act. And during that time, they recognised there would be a fallout for British Muslim communities. So in order to protect against this fallout, and they're quite canny in a way and quite sensible, they wanted to extend racial abuse so it would also cover religious abuse. And uh, they did that by suggesting that abusive and insulting words against someone's religion should be made illegal. And there was a huge debate in the House of Lords and they were taken out because the House of Lords made an amendment thinking that if we were to outlaw insulting words, uh, we would be outlawing the Bible and the Quran, for, to give two examples, which might be seen by another religious group as being offensive or abusive in some ways. So that notion, whilst, we, whilst freedoms, freedoms of speech have also been limited, the protection of religion has also itself uh, been limited. And that sometimes sort of rubs up. Yeah. One against another, because let's be honest, in our texts, you know, I'm Jewish and, and in the Bible, there are plenty of examples of violent texts. And let's be honest, in the Quran, there are plenty of examples of violent texts. And, you know, one of the fun things, of course, is to find those violent texts in somebody else's faith and choose the best one in our own. I mean, is that what we're doing all the time? Is is there that sense in 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 faith, do you think, Hira, that, that we, for those of us of a faith, that we, we tend to be very selective about the text of our own faith over and against the text of somebody else's? Definitely. And just to, to answer your question about um, acceptable of offensiveness, I do think that there is an argument to be made that we, we can criticise religion. I mean, take Islam and terrorism. There's often this notion of, oh, Islam equals peace. And that it, it upsets some people because, well, you know, Obviously, Islam has some sort of factor to play. And if we cannot have a, an educated and sophisticated discussion about this, and... That makes it elitist, though. If we say it's going to be educated mm. and sophisticated, then it's only people who are knowledgeable who can talk about it. I mean, surely, actually, everybody's got to be able to talk about it. And you're quite right. I'm often told, yeah, Islam, salam, means peace, forgetting about submission and, and other derivatives yeah. of the term. Um, and it's like saying that, you know, if somebody does something in the name of my faith mm. and say, well, it's nothing to do with Judaism, I'm kind of kidding myself, aren't I? Doesn't it also leave a space open for more aggressive views and attitudes to, to sort of to populate that vacated space? I mean, if you think about um, a controversy in this country uh, around the sex abuse scandal in Rotherham, uh, as soon as the Asian Muslim men had been convicted, there's a whole debate around what part their Islamic faith and culture played in their offending. And people were very quick to say it's nothing to do with Islam, it's all about power relations between men and the vulnerable women. But I don't know, I think that just leaves the door open for sort of people from the far right to crowd in. I think, I think it's a legitimate question to ask what happened to these men who felt marginalised by society and then who relied on a warped version of faith and culture to then go and take revenge on as they saw it, vulnerable women from a dominant group. And I think there's a legitimate question to ask about the role of religion and culture in that, in that uh, local context. Well, let's move on to religion and violence. But before we do, you're listening to the Wolf Institute podcast series, Encounter, with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Hira Amin, Junya Habash, and Julian Hargreaves. Religion and violence. We've got to be honest. If religion is part of the solution, it's definitely part of the problem. 
And, you know, let's move on to that really tricky issue of Israel-Palestine. I mean, how do we talk about Israel and the uh, conflict in that part of the world between the Israelis and the Palestinians in a sensitive way that doesn't sort of slide into anti-Semitism is one of the ways of doing it. And I'm going to look at you, Dunya, here, because you touched on <coughs> condescension and satire is one of the ways so it's actually more acceptable to be extremely critical perhaps even offensive within one's own faith than to hear it from outside uh, so there's more is there more space for being offensive when you do it within a community than if you do it towards another community yeah and i think this is part of the problem with um you know just identities or especially like being affiliated with a particular religious identity. Um, you know, when you have blind faith, it's very hard for you to, to reconcile your religion's history, its interpretations, its, its texts, you know, because you have this, this narrative in your mind that this is what Islam is. You don't have to be blindly faithful, do you, to be very strongly observant. You can be quite open and very conservative, can't you? Um, I think yes, but unfortunately, I think a lot of people today don't don't treat their religious identities in that way. And because of that, I think it makes it very hard to engage with them critically about very sensitive issues and topics. There's there's this, I don't know, this sense of injustice, you know, especially I think in the Islamic world that that the new modern world has, you know, with colonialism and all those sorts of concepts has kind of done an injustice to Islam. And because of that, you know, I, I have to build this narrative around me that... that I'm the victim. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And when, when you perceive yourself as the victim, it becomes very hard to engage critically with your own history and your interpretations, especially with someone from outside of the faith is coming and, and engaging with you in that way. So immediately you, you kind of take it, oh, he's, he's being biased or he's being uh, Islamophobic or whatever term you want to say about that. And, and I, think, I think this is a problem, you know, that people can't talk to each other. We can't listen because it's immediately, oh, he's, he's against Arabs or he is, you know, anti-Semitic. What, what about from more of a personal uh, position then? As you as an individual, do you get prickly when you see words like terrorism and radicalization and extremism? Do you feel that they're part of that uh, sort of narrative that's used to essentialize and stereotype Muslims and how do you respond when you see those stories about you know terrorists who happen to be Muslim? Yeah that's a very good question and I think my attitudes personally have changed uh, over the years. Um, I think a couple years ago I, I used to get very offended you know and I used to feel that this is not my religion these people are hijacking my my faith or what i have conceived of as islam but unfortunately over time i you know started delving more deeply and of course came across these violent things in the text and and this violent history and so just you know personally have become a little bit disillusioned with with the institution of the religion itself so so of course i still think they're a minority and they do not represent my type of Islam, the Islam that I practice. But unfortunately, I think it is true that 
And this is why I think Muslims need to have this conversation. You know, is it about confidence here? I mean, I think sometimes if you're more confident in who you are as a person, you're more able to take criticism. And I, I recognize it in my own community. The Jewish community in this country has lost a bit of confidence recently. And it's partly, you know, the labor anti-Semitism controversy and the fallout from uh, the Gaza war a couple of years ago and the sort of spike in anti-Semitism. So there's a, there's a little loss and, and therefore I think we're even more sensitive or oversensitive or paranoid. You know, there's that lovely, uh, lovely line, I may be paranoid, but I've got something to be paranoid about. Um, I mean, do you think, you know, from where you sit, that this confidence in who you are, that identity that Dunya mentioned, um, makes you more sensitive to what may or may not be offensive? Definitely, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, confidence is an issue. Um, what Dunya talked about, the sense of that very deep sense of injustice, which I think is still there. Um, very but, much. But very much still there. But I think there's also another issue when it comes to anti-Semitism is um, there seems to be this um, feeling of double standards. So there was a very recent case of a female Muslim blogger called Amina Khan. And um, she was part of the L'Oreal diversity campaign. I'm not sure if you heard about it. And um, she shot all the adverts. And um, she was the very f first Muslim woman who wore a headscarf even though it was a, a hair advert, but it was a very big, um, very big deal. But later it was um, revealed that she actually had some anti-Semitic um, tweets from years back against um, Israel. And she was swiftly removed from the campaign. And it was so ironic because she was part of the campaign as a strong Muslim woman who had a voice, except if that opinion counteracted or contradicted L'Oreal's opinion. So there seems to be, um, there was a slight uproar because why is it that she was taken down for having an opinion about Israel, whereas other people wouldn't? It's really interesting because, I mean, it's always Israel. There's so yeah. much falls back to Israel, Israel Palestine. Yeah. And, and, and I was thinking about those MPs who, so Naz Shah was found out for having made some anti-Semitic remarks. Now what happened, what was so interesting is that she was in this crisis situation, it came out and she acknowledged it, dealt with it and seems to have moved on without having this baggage. And there would be another MP, and I'm, or again, I don't know, let's just use Ken Livingston as an example, who might have made, who made controversial remarks, what appeared to be anti-Semitic remarks. I mean, being provocative, let's be honest, putting Hitler and Zionism together is nothing but being a provocateur, but not willing to backtrack from that. Um, so it's, and the it, example of Jackie Walker, oh. who's had to stand down as vice chair of Momentum. Well, that's, that, in fact, uh, yeah, that's right. So the point I want to make is that when somebody comes out with offensive remarks or racist remarks, whether they're anti-Semitic or whether Islamophobic, it's interesting how some people can recover and others can't. And I think part of the recovery of Naz Shah is this sort of honesty, this acknowledgement, I made a mistake, hands up, let's move on, and somehow being allowed to do that. Um, and uh, uh, I just wonder if there's something to learn from that, because what worries me personally in what seems to be this divided society is we're not allowing people to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Let's affect, mm. forget about being offensive, just normal things, you know, um, because everything's recorded and my kids make all these mistakes and, and it could come back to haunt them. When I made those mistakes, you know, only, David over there, the producer, was born. <laughs> Nobody will remember them. Um, so, you know, it does... It so let me, let me ask you, let me, let me throw that question back to you then, Ed. How do you feel when you read 
about the anti-Semitism row in the Labour Party. How do you feel when you see uh, criticisms of Israel? What, what ought to be the uh, respectable limits of that debate? Well, I feel, in fact, if you're asking at what point does criticism of Israel fall into anti-Semitism? I mean, it's one of the really difficult, mm. but for me personally, it falls into anti-Semitism when, when there's a denial of a Jewish state of Israel. That if, if as a result of your criticism, you're saying that actually there is no land for the Jewish people in Israel, forget the borders and, and not, not, not talk about that, but just there is intrinsically no attachment for Jewish sovereignty in that land, to me, that falls into anti-Semitism. Now, I can be very robust and I can receive very robust or hear very robust criticism of the state, uh, of, the state of Israel, the government of Israel, the military of Israel, and so on, but that's, that's my, my marker. Mm. Um, I also think more and more, what would happen if I changed the word Jew to Muslim? We do this in the class on Muslim-Jewish mm. relations, where we get all the Muslim students to read the Jewish Chronicle, which is pretty, you know, parochial newspaper and get all the Jewish students to read Muslim news or one of the Muslim papers. And of course, there's not that much difference. Mm. They're, you know, they're concerned about Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. They're concerned about Israel-Palestine. It really isn't that much difference. So what I try to do when I hear the term Islamic or Islamist terrorist, I try and think, well, what would it feel like to me if I heard Jewish terrorist? Or Christian terrorists, I'd feel quite uncomfortable actually. And I know my Christian friends, for example, would say, well, you know, Ku Klux Klan, it's got nothing to do with Christianity. Of course it has. Mm. You know, there's a big cross they're burning there. Yeah. Um, and when, you know, people talk about crusades, then some of us in this room feel uncomfortable because of that language. Mm. So yeah, I think work out your own lines and then put your own description into that. What about the accusations against the senior membership of the Labour Party, where it was said that although it was accepted that they uh, wouldn't withdraw Israel's right to exist, they do cross the line in support of groups that have used defamatory language or incendiary arguments. Um, uh, there, there gets a bit of a, a, a grey area. I think if you start associating with those groups who n not only are in a grey area but full on the other side, like Jackie Walker, for example, then yes, I think, you know, you shouldn't be part of this party called the Labour Party if it stands for fighting against racism on, on all grounds. And that's been the problem, really. I think it's been the clumsiness with which the senior and membership I, I, dealt I have with a it. sense of a reluctance, mm. you know, because there's all this solidarity with my colleagues, you know, because we've come up together. And I think there's a reluctance to face up to it, which has added to the, the, the concern. Um, I think you make a really interesting point about not being able to make mistakes. And from a personal perspective, I used to be a, a Twitter user, I used to be a blogger, but since I've started my PhD and I realised this, I've actually I've had to just stop because I'm worried that in the future something could come up and haunt me and, um, and I need to get back into it. But now I'm not as free as and I wouldn't retweet something, anything. I would really have to think about what it is. Um, and I think you're right, we, we just, we've become a society where we can't make mistakes. Um, and I think that's, that's a problem. We should be able to make a mistake and move on. You're listening to the Wolf Institute podcast series Encounter with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Hira Amin, Junya Habash and Julian Hargreaves. Julian, what advice would you give to somebody of faith 
who has a violent or extreme or offensive text in their scripture, would you recommend, for example, oh, just forget it, just delete it, just ignore it? Or would you say, let's have a go at grappling with these texts. Let's think about how our traditions, what tools they've got to handle these texts. And let me give you one. Okay. Right, to make it easy for yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. A beautiful psalm, Psalm 137. We all know it. All the listeners know it. By the rivers of Babylon, we lay down and wept. Some of us are old enough to remember the bony end single, right? <laughs> yeah. But do you know the end of that psalm? I bet you don't. No, I don't. No, you don't. At the end of that psalm, the text reads, and I quote, Blessed be he who smashes the children's heads against the rocks. <laughs> That's in my scripture. And it's in Christian scripture as well. Forget anybody else's scripture. That's my, what do I do with it? Do I just, oh, don't read it? Well, it didn't make the record, did it? It didn't verse. make the record, no. <laughs> I wonder why. Well, let me throw that back to you. I mean, no, how, no. No, I'm, I'm no theologian. You're the theologian in the group. So I think I'm, how would you respond to something like Paul's gospel where uh, Jesus' crucifixion is described as a stumbling block for a Jews? Scandal. A scandal. A foolishness for Gentiles. I'll be honest with you. And I'll be honest with the listeners, I have a soft spot for Paul. <laughs> he is so misunderstood because if you took seven of your letters here or emails, right, or sh short parts of your blogs and you try to make a systematic hearer theology out of them over a period of seven or eight years, there's no chance. So that's what we've tried to do with Paul. We only have seven letters that we know were written by Paul of Tarsus. So yeah, he was cantankerous and he was aggy and he was fed up, but actually it's not possible to make a systematic Pauline theology as people try and do. Now that's not to say we don't have difficult texts, including in the letters of Paul, and of course Matthew, his blood being us and our children, or in the Gospel of John, um, uh, you are the sons of the devil, Jesus says to the Pharisees, and I haven't even quoted anything from the Quran, making the point that we all have these violent texts, and the question is, what do we do with them for those of us who are of faith? I mean, any suggestions? This is a really good question and one I have been struggling with personally uh, this, for the past couple of years, actually. Um, as a religious person, um, someone who's, you know, deep believer in, in God and, you know, I grew up Muslim, so obviously that's the faith that is, that is most familiar to me. Um, but yeah, I, I come across these passages in the Qur'an and I don't know what to do with them. You know, of course, you know, scholars tell you, oh, you just have to know the context. You have to study it. You know, you have to go in and read the Arabic. Um, and there's always a context for it. And, and because, unfortunately, it is God's word, right? You can't really debate with that. You can't say, well, God didn't say this. I mean, this is, it's written, you know? So what you do is you reinterpret, right? Right. I'm with you, right? I mean, I quoted from Psalms, but I could easily quote from the written Torah, which was also, is also understood as divine revelation, the word of God given to Moses at Sinai. Mm -hmm. And there are texts there that talk about the ethics of warfare mm -hmm. um, and also talk about destruction of the seven, the seven groups, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, and so on, and the Hittites. Um, and what do I do with that? You can also read them in light of, I mean, we know this with texts, we, we can't just extract one or two lines or even 10, 15 lines, even half of the book, you have to understand it as a holistic um, piece. Um, so I do think it's about um, reinterpretation, contextualization and understanding it as a whole. 
and I think that's but how you can't we can... contextualize it out of existence and that's no, where I no, think we yeah. go wrong for those of us who are struggling with yeah. it because if we're more liberally minded and I use a small L yeah. rather than a sort of mm -hmm. theological L then we try and do that we contextualize we reinterpret we compare it to other more benign or universal texts but actually I think one of the things that we need to do here and now is to acknowledge the violence of it, acknowledge the abuse of it, see when it's resulted in, you know, um, subjugating women to men or black to white or Muslim to Jew or Jew to Christian or whatever. And if the text has been abused, we have no choice, I think, as people of faith, I'm Jewish, to grapple with it. And, and I sometimes feel that we don't do that. And that's why we leave the ground open to the, the radicals mm. of all our faiths to do things, to say things, to justify things in the name of their scripture. And I think this is a very important point because it's one thing to, as an individual, interpret it for yourself, you know, and say, I acknowledge that Islam has this violent history and I will reconcile with it slowly as an individual. It's another thing to, to do it as a community, to do it as Muslims, the Muslim Ummah. And I think this is a great point, Ed, because the Muslim Ummah is not doing that. They're not reconciling you know, with these very um, sensitive issues and topics. And like you said, unfortunately, we have this small minority who's taking over this vacuum. So I think I think you know that's a very important point, and I don't I don't know how to get the Muslim Ummah to start doing this. I think this is maybe happening in smaller circles. I think you're absolutely right in saying that um, as a community, it's, it's not happening on a large scale. But I know from private discussions, particularly with ISIS, and one of the um, key motifs of ISIS is its anti-Shia strand, which is um, a key part of Salafism, and. I think when ISIS rose up, there have been some debates amongst Salafis of how do we deal with the other? And are we using non-violent but very provocative language which could possibly lead to violence? And should we look at that? So it's starting, but unfortunately it's very slow. Um, but I do feel that it's, unfortunately it's taken something like ISIS to have this, but discussions are taking place, but much more needs to happen. You're fundamentally an optimist, aren't you here? Yes, I think I am. I yeah? Think I am. Yeah? So, um, so you see some progress and you see some ways that we are handling um, being offensive. Can we just tease out about whether we're more being offended in ourselves? Are we more liable to be offended than we were 25 years ago? Um, this is a very interesting question. That's what my children yeah. say to me. That's what they say to me when they get a question they really don't like. They say, oh, that's a really interesting question. I think we just, we have so many more interactions with people from different backgrounds. Now. So I, I do think it's, there's more scope to bump into somebody who has a very different life and very different understanding to you. Um, I mean, sometimes I, I live in the Gulf and their, their mannerisms, even way of walking, are very, very different. Sometimes they can walk very slow. If you do this in London, you get, and you get somebody walking around you. You don't have that in the Gulf. They're just walking very, well, it's hot. very, That's yes, it's That's hot. hot. They've got flip flops. It's a very different culture. Yeah. I mean, the, they'll be crossing the road very slow. It's full of traffic. Doesn't matter. They'll just cross the road. You, you won't get that. This is really interesting. One of the weaknesses around the debates about being offended is that the debaters or the debate at large, often assumes that all people from a single religious group are offended to the same degree or offended at the same time 
or will always be offended in a given context. One of the things that we've discussed in the past here, isn't it, is some of the changes in context and circumstances which might drive or limit uh, being offended or being perceived as offensive. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we look at the um, the, the Syrian refugee crisis with um, the Charlie Hebdo case, we saw um, the the picture of Alan Kurdi, the toddler being washed up. And this was at the apex of sympathy for Syrian refugees. So in that context, there was a lot of outrage in general, in general public. I think a lot of people felt the same. But then there was the other um, cartoon about what happens if Alan Kurdi was to grow up. Would he become a sexual harasser? And this was during the time of the German um, incident in Germany where and there were cases where migrants had um, harassed and stolen items from from the people there. So I think context really matters on um, how individual offence um, plays out in wider society. One of the things that worries me is the use of the definite article when you talk about the Muslims or mm. the Jews or the gays or whatever, as if this is a monolithic group. And I think we do have to tease out in this whole question of offensiveness, the individual offence and the individual offender without extending it to the whole community. So if it so happens that there is a Muslim who commits this crime or a Jew who commits that crime, that is not extended to the whole community. And we, we are very good at extending um, offence to everybody who's represented by that one individual. It's a great example. I can't name the town uh, or the newspaper, but I do field work up north and... Uh, north of Watford? Yeah, north of Watford. North of Leeds? I'm not saying, I'm not saying. Uh, there's a newspaper uh, in a town which has a sizable Muslim population. And this newspaper takes great delight in publishing headlines such as... Asian clothing store opens, or Muslim minicab driver convicted of fraud, or um, white attackers uh, beat up old lady in shopping centre. And it's alleged by people who live and work locally that the newspaper does it as clickbait for the local population who then jump onto the comments page, trade insults of a really racist, horrible nature, and uh, increase the revenue of this newspaper. So these issues aren't limited just to individuals. It's not just about how individuals are offended. Sometimes the media plays a part in baiting those, uh, those attitudes. Can we just apply that, Julian, to social media? Mm. Um, because social media is black and white. You know, whether I watch it in Doha or I watch it in Astana or I watch a YouTube video in London, it's the same video, but I may view it in a very different way depending on where, where, where we are. Uh, is the social media the cause of this division society? Popular debate would have it that the new generation amongst us who are snowflakes and very, very sensitive to argument, to debate and to being insulted and being... Uh, being abused. And I, I want to agree with it. And I have got some colleagues around the Institute who say, oh, these students, they're all too sensitive. And I want to agree with it. But I wonder if this extra, this extra layer of sensitivity is in fact a reaction to the very high level of offensive material that is now commonly placed in the public domain. I think back to my childhood, if someone wanted to say something offensive to someone, they might write it on a wall. If you wanted to say something in a newspaper, you would write a letter and be, be 
pretty, it'd be an, an unusual letter written in the 70s, 80s, and possibly 90s. Be a very unusual letter that would kick off with a load of uh, abusive language. Cut to today, and you've got a situation on social media and on the comments left under newspaper articles where people are given this space to be really, really offensive. So I wonder whether instead of uh, discussing and um, calling out the sort of younger generation for being insensitive, whether it's really just a reaction to the high levels of offence that are out there. Or the vast amount of data that's out there. I, I, think, I think so. The other thing, though, to sort of the flip side of this, however, is I'm not sure social media is a great platform to deal with this kind of stuff. Whilst it is a sort of uh, a great tool for people who want to be offended, it's also a place that I think closes down dissent and closes down debate. I mean, it would be a brave person who posted on Twitter that President Obama was a more violent president than President Trump's turning out. Even though when you think some of the evidence, the, the amount of nuclear weapons that Obama pointed at China or his drone program, you, you wouldn't be, get very far on social media saying that Trump is a less violent president. And similarly, with the great sort of scandal around Cambridge Analytica, I wonder if some of that scandal is because it was used for the Republican Party. I wonder if Hillary Clinton had won the US election using Cambridge Analytica data, whether there would be any scandal at all. Well, we'll leave that one hanging. <laughs> well, we, 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 I don't know how to respond to that, but we're, we're drawing to a close. And I suppose I, I'd, I'd like to end with one question um, for you to reflect on, um, which is this. Here we are at the Wolf Institute the beautiful library. In that library, there are a number of works which are very dubious. And I don't mean dubious academically, I mean dubious in terms of morality, because we've got to study these texts. For example, um, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, an anti-Semitic text that came out in the early 20th century, or an Islamophobic text. What do we do? Does it stay on the shelf? Does it go into the restricted area? How do we handle offensive texts when we're going to study them? As a historian, I would say definitely keep them on the shelf. We need to understand our history. We need to engage. And so we, we don't repeat the mistakes again. Yeah, I definitely think that they need to remain on the shelf. And, you know, as Voltaire said, um, I might disagree with you, but I will defend to the death, you know, your right to say what you have to say. And I think what it comes down to, it's a matter of ethics from both sides, you know. Vulgarity is not going to get anywhere. Being condescending is not the point of debate. It's about civil dialogue at the end of the day. And if both parties cannot listen to each other and engage in civil dialogue, then that's the real problem, in my opinion, you know. The final word, Julian Hargreaves. I suppose it comes down to the instruments we use as a society to protect ourselves and to challenge some of these notions. I think, although freedom of speech is not an absolute right, I think we muddle through in this country. Although the protection of religion is an absolute, again, I think we muddle through. And I think individuals and groups and society as a whole finds its uh, best way of existing within that. There are some things that are completely off limits, aren't there? So, for instance, it's very hard to defend anyone who would deny the Holocaust. It's very hard to defend someone who would associate being Muslim with being a terrorist. But below that, 
in that sort of greyer area where opinions become offensive to some but not to all, I think we muddle through, if I have to be positive. So we've muddled through this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Here at Amin, Dunya Habash and Julian Hargreaves. My name is Ed Kessler. You've been listening to the Wolf Institute Podcast Encounter. Next time, we'll be thinking about mental health issues, faith and the troubled mind. You can follow us on Facebook, email your thoughts and questions to encounterpodcast.wolf.cam.ac.uk or leave a review on iTunes. But in light of today's discussion, make it polite. <laughs>